5 million people amidst the war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are dear to the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to ANUS, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. This is a 10-part series of conversations with Haval Farat, Haval Tekashin and friends from a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwamizlo. These conversations provide an insight into how they are organising their society, how they are making decisions and how they are defending their zone from aggression from some of the most powerful military empires on the planet. We are confident you will find this series exceptionally interesting, but more importantly, it is the type of news we need today in order to ensure that here in Australia, we continue to act up to create that new society based on egalitarian principles in our heart. My name is Joseph Toscano. Kelly Whitworth is the producer, and we're talking to uh, Tekerson from the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, which is obviously over 10,000 kilometres away. And uh, what we will do in this program, which will be around an hour, is we'll, we'll look at the philosophical and uh, basis to the type of soci new society they've created, uh, especially uh, considering the difficult situation they find themselves in, hemmed in on three sides by um, armed uh, enemies and to try to battle COVID-19. Hello, how are you going there? Yeah, good, thanks. It's uh, good to be talking to uh, Radical Australia again. <laughs> well, we'll see how we go. Look, look. We've got here in Australia, there's been a small group of Australians who have really been excited by what's happening in your part of the world, the, uh, the autonomous administration zone of north and east Syria. But there seems to be a lot of confusion regarding the philosophical framework uh, you work under. I'd just be interested in if our listeners could have a, a bit of an understanding of what drives the four and a bit million people that uh, live in uh, this administration zone. What's the, is, there, is there a particular philosophy? Are there particular individuals or movements or groups that have influenced what's happening, the, the marvellous things that are happening in your part of the world? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, one of the most important things here is that there has been a formal philosophical framework built around the society here um, with a name um, which is what we are trying to defend so it's very important to have a name and a, a formal definition of what you're trying to defend of course um, and uh, in general though the revolutionaries I talked to uh, agreed that this this philosophical framework is genealogy uh, this translates to the science of woman. Um, and it is opposite to positivism. 
um, very much based. It's very much based on the books and works of Abdullah Chilan, of course, who you will have heard of. Uh, and he's been writing in prison for 20 years now. Um, in 2002, the, the party, the PKK, um, was a Marxist-Leninist uh, group. Um, but since the 80s, it, 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 it had, and sorry, since the 80s, it had a, a women's movement growing inside the party and becoming very, very strong. Uh, and in 2002, Abdullah Chalam from prison announced that he was working on a, a new paradigm for the party. And the, the, the whole revolutionary party shut down for two or three years. Um, it, you know, it more or less ceased to exist. And then in 2004, five, Abdullah announced this new paradigm and the party started again. You know, it just came out of nowhere again and really started reading this, this new, these new concepts that he'd come up with. Um, and it was, yeah, it was based on, so he traces the beginnings of domination back 5,000 years to the Sumerian period, um, to the kind of the priests dominating society there. And he talks about what he calls the first domination, which was man over woman. Um, but he, as he goes through history, he uh, and now he relates uh, this domination of man over woman to all other dominations as well. So domination of human over human, domination of human over nature. Uh, it's, it's the very concept of domination that he is um, criticizing and rejecting and uh, developing a, a theory for a society without domination. Um, and this is very much based on a social construct of, of men and women. Um, and the, the, the social construct of men uh, is associated with the creation of positivism. This positivism is a very big concept. Um, and it's taken me a long time to kind of grip, get to grips with what's being talked about there. Because um, positivism, you know, when you look it up on Wikipedia, it's not so helpful. It, it, it sort of means science, um, physical world science. And that, that is what it means. That's what's being talked about. But it, the effect of that culturally, so starting, say, at the witch hunts of 1450 and the development of uh, uh, positivism from there, which came with the nation states and things like this gradually developing in Europe. Um, the cultural effect of focusing on science, that is physical fact and physical evidence, because it's a positivism, it, it, it rejects anything metaphysical that cannot be proven physically. So it rejects morality, it rejects ethics, it rejects emotion. Um, it rejects emotional intelligence and things like this. And genealogy, the philosophical foundations of Rojava, is all about this other side of things. So it's all about emotional intelligence. Um, so I want to jump into an example quickly because these, these very high-level theory things can be very difficult to grasp. It was very difficult for me to grasp for a long time, despite being here with it all around me. 
So, um, living in this society, emotional intelligence is used throughout the society. It's incredibly uh, fundamental here. Now, of course, you'll understand that the scale is always smaller. We don't have, say, 65 million people in the case of the UK living under a single nation state. Uh, obviously, none of those people know their representatives. They're not friends with them. They don't know the context that any of the people live in. And you get this big distance between the governed and the governors. Um, here, the scale is smaller. Now, the scale is smaller. Um, so, for example, the, the city I live in, Commissioner, is 300,000 people. It has communes in every neighborhood and community. Um, and so they are quite small. Thus, when, let's say, uh, two cars crash into each other, um, the commune will get together the families of the people who were driving, and the families will come together and they'll try and work out a solution. Now, that will be an incredibly emotionally intelligent exercise. They won't be looking at physically what happened, although that is, of course, important to resolve. Both people need cars, the cars need to be fixed, so on. Um, they will be also naturally, I mean, it's not like they go through a mathematical exercise of writing down the emotions, you know, they're, they're naturally, because they're a community together, mm. the emotional intelligence is natural. So um, it will be very important to everyone to understand the emotional reasons why something happened, why someone wasn't paying attention when driving, for example, or why, in another case, maybe why someone is angry, you know, um, and of course, there are, there, are, there are always reasons for this, least of all in, in Syria, where a lot of people have been through terrible experiences in war. Uh, and there's a lot of poverty here, although actually in Anas here, the, the economy is actually far better than it is in the rest of Syria at the moment. Um, people are doing quite well here. Um, and so when you're in a meeting as well, um, the people come to the meeting and they are ideologically uh, educated mm. and they'll sit in the meeting and they'll all see the emotions around and the men as well you know the um the men seem to be very very excited about this genealogy here um are very much um emotionally intelligent as well and so the the harmony that i see here amongst the local people when they are trying to get things done and having technical disagreements, the harmony is incredible. Mm. They really... Mm. Do, do you have any constitutional uh, arrangements or is this more of an inherent uh, basis of making decisions based on a you know small communities or do you have kind of constitutional arrangements that protect the individual yes we do uh, both is true right now, so um, tell us tell, let's start off with the it's a written constitution i assume it's not like the british constitution Jason got one is it a written constitution <laughs> yes right could you give yeah. us an idea of what's in that constitution what what areas it looks at 
Yes, I can. Um, sometimes when we go through this, it can be confusing because I'll, I'll talk about the constitution now, but the reaction can be, well, this, this is no different to, to Europe or Australia when we look at this constitution. Uh, I can assure you, I can assure you it'll be different to Australia because we have no constitutional protection for the individual or minorities from the arbitrary exercise of state power. We have, we have the worst constitution in the Western world, so I'm sure it'll be wow, much better quite, than ours. It's quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> the worst one in the Western world. You've got some serious competition there. Um, so, yeah, I actually read the constitution or the social contracts, as it's called, before I came to Roger Harbour because I obviously was investigating to decide whether or not I'd come here. Mm -hmm. And I was greatly confused. I almost didn't come. So it protects the right to unlimited amounts of property. It protects the right to money. Um, it, uh, what were the other ones? It has, it has clauses in like the, the right to religion, the rights for, the rights for ethnic groups, the rights not to be uh, oppressed or attacked, all these sorts of things are in there. And they're very, very similar to the constitutional statements in the nation states of Europe. In fact, I couldn't find anything uh, particularly different about it. Um, um, that, that's my entire knowledge about the constitution by the social contract, by the way. Right. Um, so there's nothing... And yeah, when I, so you looked at this and you thought to yourself, why am I going to bother putting my life at risk and go to North East? Yeah. And what changed your mind? Yeah. I messaged people on forums and said there is no difference between Roger Harbour and Europe. Look at this social contract. And people were like, no, 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 no. That's, no, no. Um, and tried to explain it to me and I didn't get it. Um, and then I came here and now I, now I understand what they were saying. And I've sent apologies. Um, <laughs> Um, so what were they yeah, saying? So, what were they saying? Convince us. So, um, yeah, let's talk about the free market, the protection of the right to property, the protection of the right to money, things like this. And you go, you go and look at the laws and the structures around the economy, and there just aren't any. You know, the tax is almost nothing. I mean, it really is not even worth paying. There are basically no regulations around business at all. Um, it's, it's the ideal free market, um, which is very confusing for someone who's come from a lifetime of anti-capitalist activism to see a very vibrant free market of almost entirely little, you know, small businesses here. And, uh, yeah, so what's happening there? And then, then we see, then we look at genealogy, the fundamental philosophical basis of the society here. Genealogy, because it rejects positivism. And if you read a book on genealogy, almost every page will be criticizing and rejecting positivism. Uh, the positivistic way of, say, abolishing money. So let's say we don't like money. I'm, I'm sure, you know, we have great criticisms of it, all of us. Um, and we want to abolish it and have a society based on trust and friendship instead of money. Um, one might 
think to pass a law abolishing money and then arrest anyone who tries to use it and put them in prison. This would this would be the positive positivism approach. The genealogical approach would say, okay, money is a replacement for trust and friendship and community. When you when I go down the soup, the markets here, um, it's almost impossible for me to pay for anything. And that's not just me because I'm a foreigner. Um, all the people around me, I see enormous amounts of transactions happening just without money. And the, the both sides will be absolutely refusing money. You're my friend. I'm not charging you. But these are these are small communities, so almost everyone moving around the sea. So the genealogical approach and the approach that they do take is to say increase your friendships with the people around you, increase your sense of community. And this is the way that money then abolishes itself in the areas that it's not needed. Of course, things coming from outside, uh, money can still be used over long distance, but it, people try to also localize supply chains, not because of a technical reason, but because when you ask someone here, I need to get my watch mended, they'll ring all their friends. Hmm. They don't look it up online for a list of watch mending places. Everyone, everything goes through friend networks. If you need a lift somewhere, Everyone around you will ring their friends and a friend of a friend will turn up with a car. Everything works that way. Um, so, so, what, so, yeah, just, just to interrupt, what you're looking at is, is having both systems at the same time and hoping that one through positive encouragement basically over time will overcome the other without all the problems which occur, as you said, by making money illegal or forced collectivisation. Um, so it's you've got both systems running side by side. It's like a dual power situation. Is that correct or have I read it wrongly? Um, yes, yes, um, a dual power situation. So um, in tandem to complement genealogy, there is democratic confederalism, which I'm sure mm. everyone will have heard. This is this is the small, many, many small scales that are autonomous, independent, develop their own political, economic and uh, defense mechanisms, but networked together and work together. Um, now, the way it's been explained to me is one of my favorite comments was the Heval's system is no system. So the Hevals are the revolutionary core of the revolution. Mm -hmm. They're also called cadre. They're people who are given an oath to the revolution to uh, work for the revolution for the rest of their lives. They're, they, they, you know, they read heavily. They're very ideologically. They have, they're required to be very ideologically uh, knowledgeable. And so you can look upon, upon democratic confederalism as a network of defense against someone trying to impose a system like a nation state democratic democracy or so-called democratic democracy, or trying to impose a particular justice system um, on, on the whole of the uh, region. Um, and indeed, when I went to talk to a few people about the justice system, they said there isn't a system. And, I think it's important here to understand as well that the, 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 
justice system I described earlier, where the families come together and they try to resolve uh, conflicts. That was the traditional Kurdish system since hundreds of years. So the idea that we're creating a society, uh, we're not necessarily creating a society. We're, create, we're, we're protecting what was already here uh, to a large degree. Obviously, the role of women has changed radically. But actually, the role of women in Kurdish society was actually better than the other cultures around here as well. So one could say that the revolution has happened in the Western world you know, in the 1400s, 1500s, as it moved towards positivism, all these rules mm. and controls for every aspect of life, such that it didn't trust humans to be able to make their own decisions. Um, it always had to put rules around. Uh, whereas here, there is a different epistemological understanding of right and wrong and problem and solution. And this is really, really important to understand. Uh, when I'm in my daily tech mill, this is people sitting around and it's a time for criticism. Um, and you have to sit quite humbly. It's a very formal thing. And there's lots of ideas about how it should work. If I give someone a criticism, like, for example, I say that the Hebao was uh, aggressive one day, this might be a criticism. The, the other person doesn't answer in the tech mill situation. Now, the reason for that is it is assumed that human beings will process that and get better. They don't need to be punished or pushed or reminded. In fact, when they've done, people will assume that immediately that the Haval was, was aggressive that they will immediately realize that that wasn't a good thing and they will immediately have started progressing there. So this, this again, anti-positivist idea, humans have this amazing capacity for metaphysical morality and they are all capable of processing it and going forward like that. So uh, when you see the people coming, the foreign people coming in from positivism, they use the tech mill to criticize the physical world. You did this you said this and you must stop doing that so they attack each other and they'll attack each other uh, repeatedly in when you see the local people doing tech mills it's much much more harmonious and productive people really uh, change and move forward incredibly fast uh, primarily because the local people here have incredibly small egos I mean just amazingly small egos you can you can criticize them and they have almost no emotional reaction to it at all um and people don't criticize for egotistical reasons or they don't become defensive for egotistical reasons i mean you can quite happily disrespect a local person here and they'll just think about it positively and, and try and get better and that that's not because of an ideological revolutionary imposition uh, that's because very, very tight community here from the start has always been here for hundreds of years. So people grow up differently. Uh, mm. If you go into a local person's house, you'll see that culturally and intentionally, there are no things at all. The rooms are completely empty and the children 
grow up with no toys, not because the family can't afford them. Rich families are like this as well. They just have rooms with mats around the edge, which is interesting because actually if you go into a rich person's house, it's almost identical to a very poor person's house. The walls will be have nicer tiles on them. Basically, everything else is the same. And they mostly sleep in the same room, even if they've got several rooms as well, mm. um, which is interesting dynamic. Obviously, you don't have a representative democracy, but you do talk about democracy. Are you talking about people making decisions about things that affect them as as communities? Or what's the process? What's the decision-making process? Well, um, again, looking at it through positivism eyes, it's identical to the one in Australia, except the scale is smaller. So we have competitive voting. I think almost everywhere in Rojava there's competitive voting for delegates and they call them delegates, but they make decisions. Um, and it's not like all the people are involved in every decision. So whether it's a delegate or a representative, you know, for discussion. So it's the same. It's the same. Um, con- so what you have open elections for delegates who then make decisions on behalf of the, the people they represent or is it? Yes. Right. Okay. So it's like, a, all right. So it's a representative democratic type of system. And how often do you make those decisions about... Can you recall delegates if they go off the rails or or are they voted in for a fixed period of time? Two and a half years. And theoretically, they can be recalled. Although, personally, I have no faith in these recall systems. In my experience, they don't actually get used. Um, actually, that if you look at Cuba, which also has... Uh, recall system. Mm. Uh, was it fifty percent of the delegates were getting recalled in the initial years? Mm. There, um, Cuba has cooperative democracy, of course, which is very interesting. But they haven't chosen that here, or selection by lot. Uh, the cooperative democracy, in case anyone doesn't know, is where you can vote for more than one person on the ballot paper. Mm. So there's no competition between them, and Cuba uses this. Um, but no, they've, they've just gone for competitive democracy. So every two and a half years, uh, the communities vote for delegates. Right. And, um, and so what, what, the whole the whole society votes for delegates at the same time or different groups vote for delegates at different times? Uh, I don't know. Right. I assume the whole society every two and a half years. And, what type, of, uh, and what type of power does a delegate able able to exercise and what can a community do if... The, gal- the delegate goes beyond their uh, particular promises. Yes, power. So um, the system in Rosava is, in every other aspect of society, is responsibility without authority. Right. So all of the organisations have responsibility without authority. Um, in terms of the delegates in Annis. 
let me tell a story. So um, the Arab co-chair, I have his name here. I'll try and look that up while I'm still talking. Um, about two months ago, um, he uh, changed, his name was Abdul Mibash. He uh, passed a new regulation to increase the price of oil for the people by four, a factor of four. So a massive increase in the price of oil. Um, the Kurdish woman co-chair uh, protested, but not too much. They didn't want this to become a, a disagreement between Kurdish people and Arab, Arab people. Um, and the next day, there were marches in many of the cities in Anes, the uh, Kurdish cities and the Arab cities, buses were arriving. I was there in the protest, buses were arriving, people were getting off and going on the march against this regulation. Um, but still, you know, when, you know, when these, there's these big protests, yes, and yes. enormous number of people, it's still a very small percentage of the actual population. That's right, yeah. You know, I mean, even when we had two million people marching in London against the invasion of Iraq, um, 65 million people in the UK. Anyway, um, the next day, the regulation was removed and the oil price returned to its previous position. Mm. Now, um, I don't know whether... Uh, that co-chair was recalled or not. I've been trying to find out and I haven't managed to find out yet. Um, still, that's not necessarily so different from other countries. I mean, in, in Budapest, in uh, Hungary, for example, where I was living before I came here, they attempted to pass a regulation taxing internet usage, um, which is a hilarious failure to understand society. And, and many, many people marched the next day and they removed it. Mm. In Poland, indeed, they tried to make uh, abortion illegal under any circumstances. Millions and millions of people marched in Poland and they, they didn't do it after that. So this isn't necessarily different still, looking at the positivistic structure and regulations and actions. Mm. Um, what happens is... Uh, let me theorize here. Um, this is from my own experience. I've talked to revolutionaries about this and they really like the things I'm saying here. So your everyday life here is radically different. Even if you're a shopkeeper, your everyday life is radically different. Um, simply because, many reasons, but simply because the enormous number of people that you react interact with. Uh, you know, when I go into a shop, I just immediately sit down behind the counter now and start chatting. And I, every shop I go into, I'm in there for more than an hour chatting to all the customers and all the customers do it anyway. Attempting to buy something in this culture mm. is an enormous long process because you, you interact with everyone so much and it will be politics, it will be the local community. When someone gets hurt here, like knocked off a motorcycle or, or killed, uh, they put up a massive tent in the street where it happened and the whole community goes through it. And they don't, they don't mess about, they're immediately, why did this happen? How can we improve? What's the 
overall philosophy of of our area well you know and this people stand up and do speeches and talk um and there's loads and loads of this happening you know you can almost drop a hat and the entire community will arrive and discuss it you know um and so there's there's different types of decisions there's how many weeks quarantine will we will we have starting next week should we have one week or two Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the decision about what is woman and the massive social construction that happens in society because of this interaction about how we uh, conceptualize what woman was through history. Now, w- what I'm suggesting here is, of course, that that social construction is incredibly powerful because there is a society because there is the interaction, because there are the small egos which are very open to moving and changing, and society becomes an organism in its own right, a decision-making organism in its own right. It doesn't, it doesn't try to set the quarantine for one week or two weeks. That's an administration of things, uh, which, which is not so important to the people, especially seeing as they don't have to obey it anyway. Mm. Um, but the social construction of what is a delegate, what is their role, for example, you know, mm. and because of that massive interaction, if someone does try to increase the fuel price by a factor of four, uh, then they, they're, they're not, they're not going to have the power that they mm. think they have. You're listening to part of a 10-part series with the Civil Diplomacy Unit of the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. We're having a conversation with Tekerson, and uh, who is uh, a member of the Civil Diplomacy Unit. This is part of the 3CR Acting Up series. My name's Joseph Toscano, and the producer of this program is Kelly Whitworth. Getting back to the, the concept of uh, competitive democracy, just I've got two questions. One, do you have political parties, or are basically people stand, you know, as independents on their own feet? And and uh, yeah, that's the first question. If you'd like to look, and secondly, who's got the right to? Vote in a del- vote in these competitive uh, democratic elections. Yes, so um, they're all independent. Right, so you don't have um, political parties in in the administrative not, zone. Not within the democratic confederalist structure. No. Right. Um, there are many political parties, but those political parties are external to the system here. The 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 revolution here is far more fragmented than people realize from outside. There are many nation state ideological political parties who want to take control of the entirety of Annis. Uh, there are many Kurdish uh, nation state political parties as well. Uh, Enekese, for example, mm-hmm. is attempting to establish a nation state with the backing of the Americans and uh, a nation state police force. Um, and they're doing they're they're doing quite well actually, unfortunately, in terms of making headway, in terms of taking power. The PYD is a political party. 
Uh, it's the political wing of the revolution. Um, they are democratic confederalists. They um, are the ideological wing. They, they travel around the communities talking about genealogy and people establishing friendships um, in order to make society better. This is, this is their role. And the other political parties, the Kurdish and other political parties, uh, criticize the PYD for being a dictator because they won't share power with the NKSA and other political parties. They, because they want democratic confederalism and independent delegates uh, in autonomous regions throughout ANES that can develop their own heterogeneous political systems, voting systems, and, and so on. Um, and I'm told the voting systems do vary throughout ANES. I just don't know how they are varying at the mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope they do vary uh, a lot so, more. So, like so, so does it mean any resident above a certain age can participate in the process of electing a delegate or do you have to have some type of citizenship from the um, the community you're part of? How, how does it work? You know, you know, obviously in a representative democracy they have electoral roles, you know, they've got rules about who can vote and who can't vote, you know, and citizenship, but how would it, who who is able to make a choice regarding the, these independent delegates that stand up and say, elect me because I will do this and do that in the next two and a half years. I mean, have you got, uh, the, right, have you got, the, have you got the right to vote? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the rules are right. around okay. that. All right. um, I, can, I can research that for our next chat. Yeah, that would be interesting because I think, I think that makes a, obviously makes a big big difference about who gets elected and what comes in now you also talked about the the friends the cadres what's their role in in the uh, autonomous administration zone there in north and east syria um so the friends are the revolutionaries um in 2012 uh when the Free Syria Army attacked the Syrian regime. It left the north of Syria without any soldiers or police. So uh, the Friends, I think probably to get you close in your mind to what the Friends are, imagine a network of friend groups, real friend groups, you know, so people who watch films together and things like this. They're, um, if you imagine that, yeah, like, like, like an old, fa group. like an old-fashioned affinity group. Yeah, 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 exactly. But on you know, on a huge and very fast-growing scale mm. in 2011 and 12. Um, and one of the friend groups. Well, so first, they took control of the oil fields. All of the oil in North Syria comes through Rumelan. It was the uh, administration town. All of the administrators and soldiers disappeared when the war started. Um, and so the friends just moved in and started taking the oil revenues. Uh, and one of the friend groups bought thousands of one type of Hyundai people carrier. I think it's called a Hi something. Yeah, anyway, um, and handed them out. So actually what, what you see, if you look out the window at the road here, 
is loads of these people carriers going past. And they're almost all of them are the friends. Um, and these people going to each other's houses mostly and um, talking, socially constructing, talking about ideology, talking about things that need to be done throughout the whole revolution. And these friends are, are everywhere in the revolution. You know, there's, there's friends in the mm. teachers' union, there's friends in Annes, there's friends in the Apigay. There's, so it's, it's, it, this network pervades the whole revolution. Um, and it's very ideologically driven, certainly by the books of Abdullah Ocalan. And all the people in it are required to have very small egos. They're required to be very unaggressive. They're required to very much conform to this genealogical ideal. So they're, they're required to be emotionally intelligent and not dominant. Um, and so wherever they go, they're trying to enable everyone else's ideas and encourage friendship. Mm. Um, and my experience of the friends, because I don't want listeners to think ah, that the friends are somehow this dominant force. Yeah. They are. They do mm. have power. They do have power. But I've sat in so many meetings with these people, and it is, it is just unbelievable. I couldn't believe it for months and months when I was here, just how sweet they all are. They're, they're so curious and loving towards other people that um, the fact that they have almost absolute power in this revolution, that is, is its genealogy, this fundamental philosophy, which um, is, is causing that to not be a problem. You're, you're right. They, they do have an extraordinary amount of power. They decide not to use, utilize that power. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. It's a little bit like uh, during the Spanish Revolution, you had the the uh, Iberian Anarchist Federation, which was formed to keep the CNT, which was the bigger, you know, group that uh, millions were involved in, anarchist basically. So it's the same concept of having these revolutionaries with the people. Now, I assume, are the Friends yeah. the only armed group in Annis or are there other armed groups? So, um, yeah, I mean, again, a good way, I think, to visualise this society is a peer-to-peer -peer society, not bottom-up or top-down, but peer-to-peer. -peer. And by that, I mean, groups can establish themselves and then they go and talk horizontally to the other groups and tell them, you know, that they've established and that's something. So you have Herval H, my very good friend. Um, he came back from working in Dubai in 2012. And a cadre, a friend, met with him and um, asked him to join the revolution. And Herval H was, yeah, I mean, sounds amazing. And he got to work immediately. And what he did, um, he talked to his other friends. They bought some tech, some cameras, some things like this, and they got in their own cars and they started going to the front line um, and around the cities that were in conflict and doing surveillance work because they happened to know about tech stuff. So they, they were doing surveillance work. They hadn't asked anyone. They didn't have any uniforms. They were not official. Mm -hmm. And this is what, what I'm trying to talk about here. The concept of official 
is different here because there's no nation state. Anes is uh, about harvesting what the people are doing and letting everyone know about it. It's not about telling people to form groups. It's not about forming the police. That's not how the police formed. This, the police formed in, in the same way that I'm describing now and are continuing in the same way as almost an independent group of people. So he, he his um, unit, uh, lots of people started joining and they started using more and more tech. They eventually started sharing the surveillance stuff with other military groups, um, which was incredibly popular, of course. And, and after about five years, uh, Heval H's unit was one of the most significant units in the SDF. And again, the SDF is the same. The SDF is more about harvesting the defense that the people are doing and uh, networking them up so they can talk to each other. Um, it's, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a point here, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so you have everyone's communities are allowed to have their own defense system. So you have community defense, the happy J. Right. You have the yuppie gay and yuppie J, the male and female uh, army of uh, North and East Syria. Uh, you also have Arab. Uh, Arab areas have their own defense forces. Syriac uh, peoples have their own defense forces as well. Um, the Asaish are also um, the Asaish are a group of friends who asked to deal with security in the cities. You know, police yep. mm -hmm. basically, but let's not associate them too much with police. No, no, I understand. I understand. Yeah. So, so, that, so you're and saying that, yeah, there's, so, there's, so there's multiple layers of people who exactly. who can act, well, exercise layers, authority. How do they? Why don't they come into conflict with, with each other? Is why it, do they? Or why don't they? <laughs> why don't they? Because you've got all these okay. different different groups that have got they've got arms within this fixed geographical area. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Which has suffered war and has lost exactly. I will talk about that next week. Is yeah, you would yeah, think you uh, would think it'd be like the Wild West. So, um. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just feel that way sometimes. Uh, so, the civil diplomacy centre is guarded by Arab Muslims, right? And they go and sit with them, and you know, I sat down with them last night. I know them, and one of them leaned over to me and uh, said to me something in Arabic. My Arabic's not. Um, and the other one uh, translated and he said, he loves you. He said, he loves you. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and <laughs> coming, it's a little bit difficult for me to take comments like that. And he's looking at me and it's, yeah. and this is constant thinking. It's totally constant thing. When you go and see your neighbor, they will really, really love you. You know, um, the, the epistemological level there is totally different. So uh, I, I'm, come from Britain and I've been in Europe a lot. I've never really seen very many guns. Mm. I remember I went to Saudi Arabia when I was 14 with my parents because my father worked there for a little bit. And there was there was this um, person standing outside a bank with an AK-47 and I was 14 year old. You know, I was, I was so frightened to see a gun, you know. And here, everyone has guns. 
uh, roadblocks everywhere. Everyone has AK-47s. The people have pistols and AK-47s. Um, they really are everywhere. And I have never felt safer in my life. Because when you, when you stop, you know what I'm going to say, you know, when you stop at the roadblock, you really, really understand that these people uh, would be, whoever they are and whoever you are, would absolutely lay down their lives for you and for peace and for security and for happiness in this society. Don't forget, people are incredibly happy here. Mm. The happiness is extreme here. Um, oh, you're going to tell, yeah, you're going to tell me you're, you're happier than the uh, feudal monarchy in Bhutan. <laughs> <laughs> Should I go there? Uh, oh, they talk about they talk about a, a happiness index as far as their economy is concerned. They've got a happiness index, but it is a feudal monarchy. Yeah. Now, getting back, getting back to what you're saying, it's quite interesting. So you've got all these armed groups, but they coexist. Do you think it's the fact that the enemy at the gate, at every gate of your uh, administration, you know, of the uh, autonomous administration, uh, what they have to offer is so horrendous that basically people are forced to work together? Yes. Mm. But let me tell you a story about a conflict mm. that happened between the armed groups. So this was the Apigay and the Asage. But what, what you just said, absolutely. I mean, this society is very happy. It's much safer than everywhere else. The economy is much better and people love each other. Uh, the ideological genealogy is really having effect. People do believe it and they are protecting it. So they go to enormous lengths to ensure. And when the Asage and the, the Apigay talk to each other, don't forget that these are all people with very small egos. Now, let me tell you a story about someone who had a massive ego and was a commander of uh, a large division who egotistically uh, did something. So uh, there was a Yapige soldier and he was off duty and he got in a fight uh, in, in Kamishu it was. No, sorry, it was in Africa. And uh, the police arrived, this, this is the Asaish, who have a license, a yearly renewed license from ANES to solve problems in society. And so they turned up. They didn't find him, but he went back to the Yapigay base and the police entered the Yapigay base and tried to arrest him. Now that's illegal, they don't have the right to do that. And one of the police got his pistol out and fired it. And then they ran off. The commander of the Apigay um, took a tank and 300 soldiers and surrounded the central Asaish offices and arrested the entire Asaish. All of the Asaish and all the roadblocks throughout Afrin fled, leaving Afrin completely undefended. And uh, a state of emergency happened. Now the friends arrived. Uh, the friends put the Yapigay immediately on all of the um, roadblocks and restored security to the city. They then talked to the Yapigay commander and 
he had acted incredibly egotistically, um, incredibly aggressively, without any interest of the safety of the people, and they removed him. Um, so what I'm trying to say by this story is that the friends and the fundamental ideological basis, when it comes to delegates making decisions or commanders making decisions or conflicts between groups, they focus as much as they can on the, uh, as Abdullah says, killing the dominant male. Mm. That is getting rid of dominant egotism inside all of us. So it's not important for us what de power the delegates have when they're elected or who elects them. What's important is that they're our friends and we know them and we can trust them because they're our friends. And that is the basis that they are given their position on. And so because of the massive interaction with society, mm. I happen to know a Supreme Court judge. I happen to know commanders very high up in the military. I'm not trying to show off here, by the way. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that just in the natural course of being in this society, because of the interaction, you end up knowing all of those people. And oh. that is the mechanism, the metaphysical, genealogical the mechanism that people concentrate on. Right. It's a uh, it's a fascinating concept. Obviously, um, there's bits and pieces uh, from everywhere. It's nothing new, as you said. There was a in, in that particular region there were, there were embryonic forms of this type of society, which have had a profound impact. And the fact there was a this huge vacuum, a power vacuum in 2012, was important because people still have to eat and they still have to get health care and they still you know, they need to do all those things, and if the officials flee, well, people are forced to self-organise. But the thing is there is that you've continued that tradition now for over a decade and, more importantly, defended, you know, with human lives, that tradition. So what role do people who... I know you got defined... Have you got defined borders or not? Yes. Yes, right. we do. So, so how, how... I think maybe next... Week we'll talk about the uh, self-defence system there and how how it runs because you've talked about concepts like commanders and different layers of uh, armed um, groups with, within society and the fact how how they interact. But I think people need to understand that you live in one of the most dangerous parts of the globe because you're surrounded. Could you tell us again, once again, how big Arnis is and who are your neighbours? Yeah. Um, so Anas is between four and five million people now. Uh, Wikipedia is out of date, by the way. I mean, we've had a massive refugee influx because actually this area has been safer than all of the surrounding areas. And a lot of people have come here to be safer. And the economy is better here as well. Um, I live in the east of Anas which is a city called Kamishon. It has an airport, which is still controlled by the Syrian regime. To the west, there is Turkish occupation. So the cities of Afrin and west of there. And the people suffer there horribly under Turkish occupation, especially the women. There's an enormous amount of women being abducted in those cities. Uh, here in Kamishlaw, it's it's probably safer than the city you're in. Um, 
you know, everyone walks the streets all night by themselves, women, of course. Um, everyone wears Western-style clothing. You very, very rarely see any sort of covering up of the hair or anything like that. Um, it's incredibly safe here. You know, myself as a foreigner, I'm a target because every foreigner here, more or less, is undoubtedly working with the friends, undoubtedly a revolutionary, undoubtedly someone who believes in women's rights. And these are exactly the sort of people that um, ISIS sleeper cells want to kill. Um, but it just doesn't happen here. Kamishlo is very, very safe. Um, there are soldiers that is Asayish everywhere. I mean, every 200 meters, you've got a, a heavily armed police block mm. um, to to make the city a safe place. They check IDs. Everyone has an ID, um, civilian or Asayish or military ID. Um, in terms of danger, I mean, it's it's hundreds mm. of kilometers away to the nearest danger of place. So right. Al so, Hastike, so how big how, how to, yeah how big's the plague? It gives people an idea of the territory, the kind of kilometers wide, just to give people an idea of how big this area is with these four to five million people. I don't know how many commit I did look it up. Right, well, I can't remember. Well, how many is is is, is, is it is it as, uh, is it is it like a county in England? Is it uh, bigger than that is it you know i don't know right that's I fine mean, it's got many many major right. cities okay it? all right well what we'll do is we'll leave, we'll leave you with that homework because i think people get a yeah. better <laughs> idea of what's happening now next week we'll leave it up to you what topic but you know if you've got the time and obviously obviously it's going to be very difficult with the uh, turks kind of trying to flex their arm at the minute and obviously we yeah. understand if you, if you can't do it but We'll get you to pick a topic and we'll just go from topic to topic because obviously people are interested in how you organise and how you deal with things in, in, in a radically different manner. Uh, I'm, I'm personally, I'm fascinated by the fact that you can actually maintain that territorial integrity in one of the most dangerous places on earth, surrounded by, on all fronts, I assume, by hostile forces who uh, would have no yeah. hesitation in invading if they could. And obviously you have worked out as a community and a society an exceptionally important self-defence system for any you know, any revolutionary change. But look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Unfortunately, we've only got an hour. Well, thank you very much. And hopefully next week we will repeat the experience and uh, I'll be interested to see what you want to talk about next week. I will be interested too. <laughs> <laughs> 